Lesson 11. Love, Courtship, and Marriage. You have often wondered why two of the same family, therefore of the same heredity, and of the same environment, living in the same house under exactly identical conditions, would react in diametrically opposite ways to the same experience. For instance, twin sisters lose their mother through death. One is completely overwhelmed by grief, loses weight, becomes ill, and is inconsolable, while the other grows rosier and plumper every day and goes on just as before. Why does one girl develop a complex and the other not? Chiefly because of difference in type. Certain types react to certain kinds of experiences destructively and others constructively, and do so habitually and automatically. On the other hand, the girl who reacts with automatic constructiveness to her mother's death may develop complexes from different kinds of experiences which would not affect the other girl at all. Whenever the mind is working destructively, when, for instance, you are full of fear, it throws the switch and sidetracks the body, preventing its running properly or safely. When our emotions become tangled up with wrong ideas, destructive attitudes, or opposition, they are at cross-purposes with the body. This always has its damaging results. These results may show themselves in the form of nervousness, ill temper, ill health, melancholia, neurosis, insanity, crime, or suicide, always depending on the type of individual. Or they may merely cause him to wonder what is wrong between himself and the world, to form incomprehensible aversions to people and things in his environment, or to be vaguely restless, upset, or unhappy without knowing why. Thousands of facts go to show that the dreamer weaves his own dream out of the raw materials in his own conscious experience and subconscious desires, that each dream is the dreamer's own psychic production. This fact is of the utmost significance. It has shown the underlying causes for neuroses and other illnesses which, until the discovery of mental analysis, were inexplicable to physicians and supposedly incurable. The psychologist is today curing many people of many maladies which the physician, dealing only with the body, failed to help. Within 10 years, says a prominent surgeon, every physician who undertakes to help a patient suffering from any functional disorder will make his first step the analysis of the patient's dreams. Today, we know that numberless operations, most organic and all functional ailments, are the result of unhappiness, fear, repression, or other negative mental conditions. We know that nervous breakdowns, for instance, are due not so much to overwork as overworry. One of the most significant discoveries of recent times is that in every human being, there is a subconscious tendency to escape from the facts of life whenever they become too painful. In scientific circles, there is a new but already well-known phrase describing this, the flight from reality. This profound and universal fact is revolutionizing the therapeutics of the civilized world. It is explaining all manner of mental, moral, and physical maladies and curing them because it deals with the real source of the trouble. The particular way taken to achieve the flight from reality will depend, in each case, upon the type, temperament, 
and training of the individual and the intensity of his sufferings. The most repressive, sensitive types suffer most because they bury their griefs and disappointments deeper than others. Those who express their feelings suffer least from the repressive ailments, as was proven during the World War. Thousands of soldiers suffered from a baffling ailment. It robbed them of various phases of consciousness. It vented itself in all manner of mental derangements, with no two cases alike. For the lack of a better name, it was called shell shock, though these men had not been hurt by shells, and other men, under precisely the same conditions, had come through safely and sanely. In many instances, sight and hearing were lost, in spite of the fact that tests showed their eyes and ears to be in perfect condition. Thousands of such cases were cured upon being removed from the scene of battle, and thousands more became well in an hour after the signaling of the armistice. What was the reason? The strange malady left as mysteriously as it came when the danger disappeared. In these cases, fear and fear alone was responsible, say the greatest authorities now. It was not an open, expressed, conscious fear. Any openly expressed feeling drains off through consciousness. These shell-shocked men were of the highest human grade. They had been taught that fear is dishonorable, especially upon the field of battle. But self-preservation is the first law of nature. Each man's subconscious mind is concerned not with patriotism or any other modern innovation, but with the sole business of self-expression for that individual. These men refused to run or to be consciously afraid. But the subconscious was afraid and reacted with fear to that danger exactly as the hair of a cat rises when a dog comes near and as a bird's heart beats when the cat approaches. The greatest conflict came in the consciousness of these soldiers who had the traits of conscious courage and self-preservation most highly developed. These were precisely the men who suffered most from the shell shock. Their conscious minds refused to harbor cowardice, but the subconscious, always ready to take us out of a reality that is too terrible to be born, developed a disease that removed the men from reality, from danger, and even from a realization of the horrors around them. It is a matter of history now that when the steamers carrying shell-shocked men were torpedoed and the patients flung into the water, almost every man recovered his sight, hearing, reason, or whatever it was he had lost, all through the subconscious powers which gave him the diseases in the first place. The subconscious minds of these men, said a leading New York physician, recognized in the torpedoing of the boat a new danger from which shell shock could not save them. A danger, in fact, wherein every fiber of that organism must fight for its life. So the lost senses returned. The subconscious mind is the miracle mind of man. Dreams are the most frequent and the least harmful of these flights from reality. Invalism, hypochondria, drunkenness, drug-taking, all forms of neuroses and suicide itself are but the different roads which different types and temperaments under differing conditions take to get away from life as it is. In all these, the conscious mind relaxes, forgets the troubles of the day, the disappointments, the hurts, the wounds, and reverts to temporary peace. With the drugging or putting to sleep of the conscious mind, the individual ceases to think. He reverts to that much more ancient and pleasurable thing, feeling. His modern, civilized brain 
which is yet so new it finds the struggle difficult, goes off shift, and the subconscious mind, primitive, powerful, pleasing, and pacifying, takes charge. He ceases to deal with abstract thoughts or ideas. He revels in the mental pictures supplied by the subconscious from its endless morgue of symbols. The real reason for the popularity of the modern motion picture is the fact that it appeals to an age-old instinct, an ancient psychological habit of the human race, the habit of dreaming in pictures. Every person subconsciously recognizes in the motion picture the same kind of activity he is engaged in every time he dreamed a dream. Your dreams are your personal, private movie shows. An even deeper significance of the popularity of the moving picture lies in the fact that it furnishes in the lives of the disappointed, the depressed, the discouraged, the worried, and the ailing exactly the same relief from reality as do the dreams in our sleep, but in a lesser degree. People unconsciously prove this by measuring every moving picture according to its ability to grip and interest them. In other words, to make them forget reality. When one says he did not enjoy a certain moving picture, he is unconsciously saying that, for some reason, it did not take him out of reality. The fact that there are different types of people, each requiring something different to take him out of the troubles of every day, accounts for the fact that what one calls a great picture is called absolutely no good by someone else. We unconsciously make every moving picture fill the pleasure requirement of the dream in another vital respect by automatically visualizing ourselves in the role of the hero or heroine. We then live the whole story vicariously with the action revolving around ourselves. The surest way to attain health is to renovate the mind. One way to know whether yours is building for health and happiness or for distress and disease is to watch your own mental movies in your daydreams and the dreams of your sleep, measuring and estimating their meaning according to the standards laid down in this lesson. If destructive emotions pervade your sleep dreams, these same emotions are disturbing your waking life and in turn your health. If you are constantly trying to escape reality, you are in danger, mentally and physically. Instead of attempting to sneak out the back door, walk out through the front, into the facts of your life. Loving and being loved is the supremest human experience. Under its magic influence, we become changed beings, happier, stronger, sweeter, better. Without it, we wither, weaken, and disintegrate. Its effect on health and achievement is immeasurable. Many have attained mediocre success without visible lovers, but none ever achieved greatness without a great love. It might almost be said that none save great lovers have scaled the heights. This does not mean that the great love of a life must necessarily be for or from one of the other sex, though these are the most powerful and productive loves possible to man. Nor does it assume that the loved one must be a flesh-and-blood creature. The ideal whom may adore in secret and whose prototype is never found in real life often serves greater purposes than any living lover. Very idealistic, very sensitive, very repressive types seldom find mates as beautiful, refined, sympathetic, or understanding as they demand. And this accounts for the fact that these are the very types 
which most often remain unmated, while their opposites marry early and often. No one lives who is not in love all the time with a person either real or ideal, says Wilfred Lay. In many men and women, this ideal personality is the only one loved, but often loved subconsciously, while for others, there is also a consciously loved or admired real person. How to unite the conscious and unconscious love so frequently at variance in the same soul and center it upon one person of the opposite sex becomes therefore a great problem of life today. In civilized human beings, the love urge is second to the ego urge in many. In many, it appears to take precedence of the direct ego urge, though it must not be forgotten that love for an individual is always, and to a far greater extent than the lover realizes, an indirect expression of the ego. To be loved is gratifying to the ego of every individual, regardless of whether he has ever seen or ever will see the one who loves him. To love is to know a new power, to sense unplumbed depths in one's own soul, to realize his own strength, to express his spirit. So powerful is the effect of love that, though loving and being loved by one of the other sex is life's profoundest experience, to love and be loved by a friend, a parent, a follower, a child, or even a dumb animal is uplifting, strengthening, consoling. This has been proven in countless cases, such as have come within the range of your own observation. You wonder why certain men and women become so deeply attached to a dog, a bird, a cat, or other pet. But to the student of mental analysis, there is nothing strange in this phenomenon. Every individual craves love from someone and to give out his own. When, for any reason, he is unable to find a human being sufficiently similar to his ideal to love and be loved by, he seeks a substitute in whatever other creature appeals to him most. Rather than being indicative of a less high evolution, this often indicates a higher-than-average nature on the part of the pet-loving person. It is well known that cruel, selfish people seldom care for animals. It is equally well known that those who are kind to animals are gentle, refined, sensitive, idealistic, in short, highly evolved men and women. These two facts are so universally known that when a motion picture introduces a character by letting you see him kick a dog or mistreating any animal, you know he is the villain. But when sweetness of nature, kindness of heart, and goodness in general are to be pictured, the camera tells it all to you in a flash by showing the character petting or playing with some birds, lambs, dogs, kittens, or horses. One of the most beautiful, brilliant, and famous young women in America is the cartoonist Faye King, of whose hands we have spoken in Realizing on Your Personality. Spirituality and gentleness of heart distinguish all her work. In her room at the Hotel Pennsylvania, New York City, is her pet canary, Mike, whom she has had for 10 years and whose imaginary sayings are familiar to the millions who see Miss King's stories and cartoons every day in the leading newspapers of the country. Bill Hart's devotion to his beloved horse Pinto and Mary Pickford's to her Big Danes are stronger proofs than even press agents can produce of the natural goodness and inner refinement of these famous figures. The Freudian theory that all our activities have a sexual significance is not only disproved by the ordinary facts of our own everyday lives, 
but further disproved by the study of the human instincts. Sex is a fundamental instinct and as such wields the great influence over our lives which any basic instinct wields. But that it pervades our personal universe to the extent ascribed to it by the Viennese school seems scarcely possible, even when we allow the wide latitude and admit the great self-ignorance which the first psychoanalysis suggested. In fact, measured by their effect upon our lives, a large group of instincts takes precedence of the sex instinct in the life of the average human being. That there is a period during adolescence when the instinct of sex dominates our thoughts, feelings, and actions is undeniable. But that that period of intense preoccupation with sex is of short duration is also undeniable. In the normal individual, it is ordinarily not more than five years. Even in the less-than-average lifetime there are, before it arrives and after it passes, some 40 years when the instincts of assimilation, pugnacity, egoism, and self-expression, singly or combined, far overshadow the influence of the sex instinct. With due respect to Freud, who has done so much to awaken mankind to its great subconscious forces and whose contributions to the human sciences are immeasurable, he gives, or so it seems to some of us, undue weight to the ancient sex symbols of ancient peoples. It is not unlikely that instead of these symbols running inward toward sex as the spokes of a wheel run into the hub, these sexual symbols were primitive attempts to picture in the only language they knew, higher and non-sexual cravings. Not only do we know that we have manifold and mighty impulses which are not related even remotely to sex, but we know that love itself is by no means wholly sexual, even the love between the sexes. The lore of love goes far beyond and far higher than sex lore, as we see in that greatest example of human devotion, mother love. Every creature desires to be loved, and often to love and be loved by those with whom he cares to associate nothing sexual, even remotely. Alienists, physicians, and psychologists are all aware of the healing power of love and the harming power of hate. We have seen many a patient cured of a disease which medical science could not touch by the patients falling suddenly in love. And we have seen stalwart ones succumb to all manner of maladies when thwarted in a much-desired affection. So all-powerful and all-pervading is the demand for love and the desire to give love that every child, so scientists say, is in love with someone by the time he is three years old. From that time to the moment of death, he is in love with some real or ideal person upon whom he showers, in his imagination, if not in real life, the flowers of his spirit. Being instinctive, intense, and impulsive, this love urge, like every other, demands expression and, like every other, is forced to express itself in its environment. The only environment the child knows is the home. The only people from whom it can demand love and draw love unto itself are the people in its environment. To the average child, this means his parents. They are the objects upon which he showers his own instinctive love energy, and he tries, with all the subconscious powers he possesses, to induce them to love him in return. None of this is reasoned nor thought out in any conscious sense, but is done inevitably and unerringly, just as the newborn babe, 
consciously knowing nothing whatever, yet subconsciously knows how to satisfy hunger at its mother's breast. Under normal home conditions, the child finds, ready-made, the ideal situation for the growth and expression of his instinctive love urge. His parents, craving always more love themselves and craving always to give more love, respond not only unreservedly to the child's demand for love, but encourage its further development by doing all the things which lure love from anyone, anywhere, at any time since the world began. Love begets love. It is practically impossible to resist people who truly, deeply love us and who self-sacrificingly continue to shower it upon us. Thousands of marriages are consummated every year as a result of one of the pair having loved the other into loving him. Between the child and the parent, there are no barriers. Everything conduces to the encouragement, enhancement, and full expression of love. To the child from the parent, from the child to the parents, and back again in an accentuating circle. It is small wonder, then, that by the time he is three, every child is deeply, intensely in love with his parents. In many instances, this first great love is never excelled in adult life. Thousands of men and women fail to find, when grown up, any love situation to compare with this original one and remain single without ever realizing the underlying reason. With every condition ideal and ripe for love on the part of the parent and the child, and with every tradition backing up the parent's love for their children, it is inevitable that parents and children should develop a devotion for each other that is all the more intense because all the rest of the world blocks love. For this very reason, it is inevitable that this concentrated love should sometimes subconsciously exceed the bounds of cold reason. It is always a surprise to outsiders to see the blindness of parental devotion. It is equally surprising, looked at from the standpoint of actual facts, to see the blind faith of the child in his weak or unworthy parents. But all this is inevitable. We love those who love us. We believe in those who love us even after we are old enough to know better. So it is hardly to be expected that the young child should refrain from pouring out its instinctive affection upon the parents who comfort, feed, and shelter it, and who shower upon it the affections it demands. It is true in most cases, for reasons entirely apart from sexual ones, that the daughter loves the father more than she loves the mother, and that the boy loves his mother more than he loves his father. But that the sexual element predominates even unconsciously in this relationship is as false as it is unfair. And it is proven in this fact that at least one-third of all girls love their mothers more, while more than a third of boys love their fathers best. Oedipus and Electra are indeed myths. Which parent will the child love more? If we need any further proof of the fact that the ego urge is more powerful than the sex urge, we find it in the answer to this question. Four, the child will love most that parent who most appeals to his ego, regardless of sex. The child will center its greatest love exactly where the rest of us do, on those who are most devoted to him. If the father is more strict, more unyielding than the mother, the daughter will love her mother best, and the greater warmth of her devotion to her mother will be in proportion to the differences in their treatment of her. For instance, if a father is extremely severe with his children, and the mother almost as much so, all the children, regardless of sex, 
will love their mother more, though not much more, than their father. If she is the opposite extreme from the father, if she gives them their way, pets, loves, fondles, and forgives them where he punishes and tyrannizes, all the children will adore their mother and, whether or not they ever admit it even to themselves, subconsciously dislike their father. Regardless of how right he was or how wrong and weak the mother was, this will invariably be true. On the other hand, if the mother is austere, undemonstrative, and a hard taskmaster, her children may have great respect for her and consciously admire her more than a worthless father. But if that father indulges them and shows more affection, though he be a drunkard, thief, or murderer, still will all the children love him best. And they will continue to do so just so long as he is the more indulgent parent. This love is from the subconscious, and the subconscious, as has been stated before, knows nothing of these modern standards of conduct. It deals with the expression of the individual. It is for whatever and whoever serves his instinctive cravings. The accuracy of all of this can be proved at any moment by any person from his own experience. Regardless of whether he is willing to confess it or not, he knows that the parent he truly feels the greatest affection for is the one who is the more kind, more loving, and more indulgent with him. If, as often happens, the severe parent selects one of his children for special favors, if he shows partiality to that child to a greater extent than does the other parent, that particular child will begin to prefer him to the other parent, whereas the recognition of this partiality by the other children will make all the others withdraw farther and farther from the father and nearer to the mother. Here we come to the secret back of all the father-daughter and mother-son complexes. And like most secrets, it proves upon investigation to be a perfectly simple thing after all. It is true that most daughters love their fathers best simply and solely because most fathers indulge their daughters more than they indulge their sons. In other words, because they are conscious of the difference in sex and have been trained to protect women, fathers more often do for their daughters than for their sons the things that inevitably win love from anyone at any time under any conditions. Let a father who has thus won his daughter's love suddenly begin to favor his son, while the mother, who has been partial to the son, suddenly commences to show extreme favoritism to the daughter, and both these children, after a few days or weeks of suffering and uncertainty, will interchange their affections and go on just as before with their new loves. It is true that most sons love their mothers more than they love their fathers, and for the same reason as that stated above. In all such instances, the mother has shown more love and indulgence to the son than did the father. Here, again, we come to the effect of tradition. Just as the father indulged the daughter because of the traditional protection of women by men, he is inclined to be strict with his son because tradition says sons must be made to stand alone. But the old subconscious knows not of these things which have come recently into the world. All the boy's subconscious knows is that he loves his mother best. His affection for her is enhanced by her devotion to him, a devotion in which she too is the creature of tradition. Women are expected to minister to males. Her son is a young male, a wee man. To him, she naturally and habitually tends to give the best of things, and he inevitably and automatically to love her best. All this is delightful to the child. He loves to love and be loved. 
His childhood is more wonderful by far than that of the children who, for any reason, do not receive this unstinted affection. But he often pays a tremendous price for it in later years. To the boy who loves his mother, that mother becomes the epitome, the symbol of all that is desirable in love. As a man, he can love only those women who bear a real or imaginary resemblance to her. If he can find no woman who seems to him at all like his beloved mother, he will never fall in love. The more superior the mother and the more deeply and exclusively he loved her, the less likelihood will there be of his finding anyone resembling her. Proof of how deeply submerged are some of our strongest impulses is seen in the fact that all this is unknown to the individual in whom it is operating so strongly. He has never been consciously in love with his mother and may even imagine he would prefer women who are very different from her. But the fact remains that those who are different from her never appeal to him, while he will fall in love at first sight with one who recapitulates the mother symbol. The daughter who loved her father may never know why she cannot find it in her heart to marry any man. The real reason? That she is unconsciously still in love with her father, or rather with the image of him which she carries in her subconscious, is usually inconceivable to her. She may care little or nothing for him now. He may be the kind of man her mature judgment and lifelong training tell her is beneath her affection. She may know he has always been beneath it, but it will not alter that subconscious symbol. The man she loves is not her father as he is today, as he looks today, nor is it her father himself whom she loves. What she loves is the image of him. Face, features, ungrayed hair, smiles, gentleness, and all that he was in her babyhood days. She loves in men only those things which her father seemed to be in that far-off time. She admires only those men who have the traits her father seemed to have. She will never truly love any man who does not, in some or several particulars, remind that subconscious mind of hers of this father image. As in the man's case, this woman seldom dreams what it is that determines her attitude toward men. She was not consciously in love with her father any more than he was consciously in love with his mother. What in the world did he see in her? And how did she ever happen to fall in love with him are questions the world often asks. The real answer is never forthcoming because nobody knows it, least of all the person whose taste is being discussed. Such a man may explain to you for hours at a time the many delightful traits he saw in her, but the fact of the matter is that what he saw in her was his original love image. If, as a child, he was tenderly cared for and loved by some other woman because of his mother's death or absence, it will be her image, as he loved it then, which he will seek. In all this, it must be borne in mind that the person need not necessarily look like the loved parent, For the reason, as has been stated in earlier lessons, that the subconscious tends to take not the whole, but a part or section of a thing and let it stand for the total. There is no knowing what element it will take as the symbol of the whole, much depending, as we saw in the emotions lesson, on the emotional intensity accompanying isolated incidents. So there is no way of determining without a mental analysis, either by oneself or an analyst, What characteristic was chosen by the subconscious as the symbol of the loved parent? The nearest one can come to knowing what symbolizes this parent in his mind, if he does not already know, or if he cannot be fully analyzed by an expert, 
is to ask himself this question. What is the first thing that comes into my mind when I speak the name of my favorite parent? The difficulty with this question is that, having read this question before putting it to yourself, your conscious mind tends to short-circuit the real answer. It therefore tends to throw the switch on it, as it were, and deliver the answer in accordance with your conscious preferences, rather than the facts. But if the question were put to you by an analyst without your knowing its significance, your answer would, under proper conditions, come direct from your subconscious mind. If by any chance you are still in doubt as to which of your parents you loved more, you can test yourself by the following. Which one do I think of first when recalling my parents? Under an analyst, your spontaneous answer to this would be the name of the parent you had loved best. There are several reasons why it is not easy for us to analyze ourselves, especially in the matters referred to in this lesson. The first one is that when we know the significance and meaning of the question, the surface mind almost invariably intercepts the true answer before it comes to the threshold of consciousness and substitutes one in keeping with its own standards. An illustration of this was seen a short time ago in a woman of middle age who had had a most lonely life. She had been in love but once, and then with a man who was already married. She criticized herself for years for having cared for another woman's husband, though she had no overt acts to be ashamed of, and in fact, had never indicated to the man nor to anyone else that she cared for him. She left the city where he lived, but worked in uncongenial positions with uncongenial people and, instead of caring less for him, felt that she was caring more as the years went on. At last, it so happened that this man not only moved to the city where she was, but was employed in the same establishment as herself. She was determined to rid herself of what she had all these years termed her unholy affection. She had no real respect for this man, who was mentally and morally her inferior, but his dark brown eyes made her forget everything save her love for him. Analysis showed that she had really loved her shiftless father because he had been most indulgent to her in her childhood. As she grew older and realized his mental and moral weaknesses, she ceased to respect him and was not really sorry when he passed on. She lived with and supported her mother, who had suffered much at the father's hands. So fully did she respect her mother's superior qualities that she supposed she cared more for her than she had ever cared for the father. Two tests brought out the fact that her father had dark brown eyes and that dark brown eyes of a particular expression were to her the symbol not only of her father, but of all love. The similarity of expression in the married man's brown eyes, his shiftlessness and moral and mental weaknesses all combined to revive the old symbol. When fully convinced that it was not the married man she loved, but the symbols of which he reminded her, she ceased instantly to care for him. A physician who had struggled for many years with a growing dislike for his wife was analyzed. He had consciously refused to display this aversion or encourage it. It had assumed such proportions, however, and was arousing such dangerous emotions that he feared not only for his health, but for the future of their family. It was found that when he was 78, he had an accident which it was feared would make him permanently blind. He spent nine weeks in a hospital with his eyes bandaged. Long before they were unbandaged, he had fallen in love with the waitress who had brought the meals to his bedside, though he could not explain why. 
When he saw her for the first time, he found she did not look at all as he expected her to. But that did not prevent his marrying her two weeks afterward, as soon as they were sure his eyes would be normal again. Analysis showed that what he had really fallen in love with was the girl's voice. It was low and sweet, like that of his mother, who he had subconsciously loved, but who had been dead many years. He pictured her face, before he saw it, as that of his mother. By the time they removed the bandages from his eyes, he was so deeply in love with the symbol voice, he forgave the difference in the face. If the mother's face instead of her voice had been the love symbol in his mind, he would not have loved this girl. But her face was secondary and thus relinquished, when necessary, from the ensemble. The mother's voice was the real symbol of love to him, and any woman with this voice would have appealed to him. Before he had been married a week, he realized that this woman's voice was the only thing she possessed in common with his beloved mother. The wife was, in fact, the almost exact opposite of the mother, most of whose traits he unconsciously loved. Their marriage had been to him one disillusionment after another. His wife was unlearned, where his mother had been highly educated. She was uncouth and crude, where his mother had been refined, rough, outspoken, and quarrelsome, where the mother had been amiability and gentility itself. He tried to accustom himself to her, to overlook, to convince himself that this woman who loved him and bore his children was not to blame. He had been brought up to believe that a husband and father had no right, under any circumstances, to think of himself, that his family deserved his time, strength, and love, regardless of everything. To escape from the hated reality, he drank much coffee, then other stimulants, and when we met him, he had been taking drugs some time. It was very difficult for this man, who had treated others for so long in his practice, to relax sufficiently and confide sufficiently to the analyst, though hitherto unrealized reason, for falling in love with this woman so far beneath him. It was not easy for him to admit that things medicine could not touch could be brought out into the sunlight and cured by mental analysis. But such was the case. He was shown the exact facts, that he had not turned away from his wife for the reason that he had never loved her. He had married what he supposed was a woman like his mother, and she was utterly different. His years of brave struggle to keep from hurting her, a large husky woman, had resulted in almost wrecking his own much more refined organism. A recognition of the facts and the restoration of his self-respect enabled him within a few months to resume his practice and give up his drug habit. This love between mothers and sons and fathers and daughters, with its far-flung influence upon human lives, is seen in almost every great love of history. But nowhere is it more strikingly illustrated than in that most illustrious love union of modern times between Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning. We will quote direct from its sympathetic and poetic rock on tour, Albert Hubbard, in his Little Journeys. Robert Browning's mother was a woman of fine feeling and much poetic insight. She knew good books. The mother and son moused in books together, and, according to Mrs. Sutherland Orr, his biographer, this love of mother and son took upon itself the nature of a passion. She was an infirm individual, a shut-in, reclining always on a couch. The love of Robert Browning for Elizabeth Barrett was a revival and a renewal of the condition of tenderness and sympathy that existed between Browning and his mother. 
There certainly was a strange and marked resemblance in the characters of Elizabeth Barrett and the mother of Robert Browning, and to many, this fully accounts for the instant affection that Browning felt toward the occupant of the darkened room when they first met. It also accounts for the answering love Elizabeth Barrett gave him that first moment. Robert Browning was, on first sight, much more the father type than the poet. His frame was compact and strong, like her father's. His poise, his protective power symbolized the things her father had meant to her in her childhood days when he was all love for her. Edward Barrett had a sort of fierce, passionate, jealous affection for his daughter Elizabeth. He set himself the task of educating her from her very babyhood. He was her constant companion, her tutor, advisor, friend. The child's health broke. From her 13th year, she appears to us like a beautiful spirit. But she did not complain. She had a will as strong as her father's and felt a Spartan pride in doing all the studying he asked and a little more. She read, translated, thought. To spur her on and to stimulate her, he published several volumes of her poems. Came a time when Mr. Barrett was jealous of his daughter, of the fame that was taking her away from him. The passion of father for daughter, of mother for son, there is often something lover-like in it, a deal of whimsy. Edward Barrett's daughter, she of the raven curls and gentle ways, was reaching a point where her father's love was not her life. A good way to drive love away is to be jealous. He had seen it coming years before. He had brooded over it. The calamity was upon him. Her fame was growing. Someone called her the Shakespeare of women. Edward Barrett scowled. He accused her foolishly and falsely of perverseness. He attempted to dictate to her. She must use this ink or that. Why? Because he said so. He quarreled with her to ease the love hurt that was smarting in his heart. Mr. Browning, who had heard of Miss Barrett and admired her work, wrote asking permission to call upon her. Miss Barrett replied that her father would not allow it, neither would the doctor or nurse, that she lived in a darkened room. She added, there is nothing to see in me. But this repulse only made Mr. Browning want to see her more. He appealed to her cousin, an elderly gentleman, who was the only person allowed to call. The cousin arranged it. He timed the hour when Mr. Barrett was downtown, and the nurse and doctor safely out of the way, and they called on the infirm prisoner in the darkened room. They did not stay long, but when they went away, Robert Browning trod on air. The beautiful girl-like face in its frame of dark curls lying back among the pillows haunted him like a shadow. She was slipping away. He would love her back to life and light. And so Robert Browning told her all this shortly afterward. She grew better. And soon we find her getting up and throwing wide the shutters. It was no longer a darkened room. The sunlight came dancing through the windows. The doctor was indignant. The nurse resigned. Of course, Mr. Barrett was not taken into confidence, and no one asked his consent. Why should they? She was 35, and her father a man who could never understand. So one fine day, when the coast was clear, the couple went over to St. Marylebone Church and were married. The bride went home alone, could walk all right now, and it was a week before her husband saw her, because he would not be a hypocrite and go ring the doorbell and ask if Miss Barrett was home. And of course, if he asked for Mrs. Robert Browning, no one would have known whom he wanted to see. 
But at the end of a week, the bride stole down the stairs while the family was at dinner and met her lover husband there on the street corner where the mailbox is. No one missed the runaways until the next day. And then the bride and groom were safely in France, writing letters back asking forgiveness and blessings. Health came back, and joy and peace and perfect love were theirs. But it was joy brought with a price. Elizabeth Barrett Browning had forfeited the love of her father. Her letters written to him came back unopened. He declared she was dead. We regret that this man, so strong and manly in many ways, could not be reconciled to this exalted love. Why could he have not have followed the example of John Kenyon, who had always loved her and who, it is said, did not smile for two years after her elopement? The answer is to be found in human psychology, which today shows us that many who think they love someone are really only loving themselves. When you truly love, you want the adored one to have not you necessarily, but whatever he or she desires. That John Kenyon truly loved Elizabeth Barrett was proven when in his will he left all he had, $50,000, to the Brownings to add the last touch to their happiness. They were poor, but his kindness placed them forever beyond financial fear and gave them perfect peace. In this ideal meeting of the Brownings, as in all great loves, it was again proved that it is love rather than sex which most human beings seek in marriage. People seek marriage in proportion as they lack love and friendship in their lives. Many a handsome bachelor remains unmarried, not because women do not care for him, but precisely because they do. This satisfies his demand for love without the entanglements resultant from wedlock. Psychology also explains why, at 50 or so, these men finally marry. They are beginning to lose their attractiveness. The love and friendships of women which have substituted for marriage became fewer in number and fainter in feeling. Such a man awakens to the fact that if he is to be supplied with personal affection, he must find a mate and settle down. While it is true that many supposedly celibate men and women live far different lives from what we imagine, it is equally true that the attractive, popular type of bachelor described usually lives a far more celibate life than the sophisticated would believe. We base this statement not only upon observation and knowledge of psychology, but upon our experience with thousands of students throughout the United States. Many of these men have stated in private analyses where they can be even more frank than with their physician and where there is the fullest understanding and consequent tolerance of every human weakness that though they bore the reputation of being exceedingly gay, as a matter of fact, they lived lives of chastity out of preference. Many of these men desired an analysis largely to find out why they preferred to live this life instead of the one popularly ascribed to them, the kind they also supposed other such men lived. In many instances, such a man has labored under the delusion that he was eccentric, freakish, or abnormal, and was relieved but not surprised when he learned that his was not only a perfectly normal but much more prevalent attitude than the world realizes. It is not the popular man, but the unpopular one, who gets little or no love from anyone, who seeks sexual expression, and who, instead of the celibate life credited to him, lives on containing sexual experiences that would amaze his unsuspecting friends. The same is true of the flirtatious, attractive woman, and especially of the supposedly dangerous young widow. 
It cannot be repeated too often that what the human being desires most is not sex, but love. If love of a personal nature can be obtained without sex, many there are, in both sexes, who prefer single blessedness to mating and celibacy to sexual expression. The attractive woman who can win and hold the devotion, attention, affection, and love of men, to whom they send flowers, candy, books, and other gifts, is never the sexual creature she is painted. This also we know from private analyses of thousands of such women. The adulation which the ego is always subconsciously craving in love is satisfied by these attentions. The love demand is met by the affections of a large number of men. Often, they feel no further need of expression. It is the quiet, self-effacing, timid, plain, and outwardly puritanical women who dwells on the matters of sex, searches the libraries for sex literature, and finds sexual expression in the least suspected paths. She it is also who is most easily induced to give herself out of wedlock because her heart is so starved for love. Such a woman, if no longer young or if of the extremely repressed type, often refuses, but it is in the face of terrific struggle. She desires not to refuse more than the self-expressive woman can ever know. Her willpower deserves our utmost respect. All these and myriads of corroborative situations, facts, and conditions throughout all human experience prove conclusively that even love is far less crassly sexual than we have ever supposed. Every human being craves understanding, communication, and the certainty of intimate personal interest. We believe the time will come when all thinking men and women will recognize that the things of sex are resorted to not so much for their own sake as because they give the surest and completest sense of this deep, personal intimacy. Look in any direction you will, under any condition. Observe any person or persons of any race, nationality, education, belief, or training, and you will find what historians have always seen but never understood. That the instant this personal intimacy is fully established, the sexual element assumes a less important role. Once the sexual act has taken place, the utmost intimacy known to humans is established. The sex urge is, to a far greater degree than we have ever dreamed, merely a means to an end. Having fulfilled its mission, it immediately takes a secondary place. This again proves to us how much more of the ego element exists in even the wildest love than we have ever recognized. Hundreds of women and men wonder why no subsequent sexual experience with the same mate ever rises to the heights of the first. Many whose mates love them more than they did at first imagine that because passion has died, love has flown. The exact opposite is more often true. Passion is always and invariably self-centered, egoistic, and wholly self-expressive. It cannot, by its very nature, awaken or exist minus these qualities any more than you can become hungry because another has been without food, nor halt your own starvation by watching him eat. To yield one's self without desire as the instrument of another's desire is unselfish, though a most dangerous and reprehensible kind of unselfishness. But to satisfy one's own desire is the essence and epitome of self-seeking. Many a wife and many a husband who recognizes this subconsciously withdraws from contact with his mate for no other reason than his aversion to being made merely an avenue of self-expression for another. 
This again illustrates the all-pervading urge of the ego. The greater the ego of such a one, the more certain is he to retreat from his mate when his subconscious finally becomes aware of the facts. He may never suspect the reason for the cooling of his ardor. On the other hand, it may be a fully conscious reaction. If he has reached the age or stage of life when the sexual urge is less dominant, this withdrawal and relinquishment of sexual expression may have no appreciable effect. But if such a one still loves his or her mate and is still very much alive sexually, there may arise a conflict between the ego instinct on one hand, which refuses to adapt itself to utilization by another, and the sex instinct, which demands expression and knows nothing save its own desires. In these cases, and there are tens of thousands of them, conflicts and complexes of various kinds arise, always in accordance with the type of the individual. As time goes on and one finds that his mate bears little or no resemblance to his ideal image, he will try to forget or fight his aversion, seek new relationships or separate, depending again upon his type and temperament. If you were one of a large family of children, the probabilities are you did not have enough parent love lavished on you exclusively to establish a too vivid love image. If you were brought up by someone other than your parents, it is not likely that you were harmed by a too intense affection. If you grew up in an institution, you doubtless received too little love and were permitted to show too little. But in any case, this lesson cannot fail to help you. Read it carefully. Be frank with yourself. Through it, you will come ultimately to a deeper understanding of your own personal problems. Though it is a startling and to many a shocking fact, it is nevertheless true that the people we love are desired, not for themselves, but for ourselves, and loved to the extent that they, directly or indirectly, aid in our own self-expression. All of which proves again how the beloved ego in each of us makes or mars our world. The child loves best the parent who most aids it in expressing itself. The man loves best those women who aid most in his self-expression. Women love best those men who aid them most in their self-expression. Every unmated person is seeking, as we have seen, a lover who recapitulates the symbol of his first great love. But such a one, even if found, will never bring him continued happiness unless he be, in addition to this symbol, of a biological type which automatically aids in the self-expression of his mate. When a man finds a woman who recreates his love symbol, he can love her instantaneously. But if her biological type is such that she cannot aid in his continued self-expression, he will eventually tire of her. The more she obstructs his self-expression, the sooner he will tire. If she not only refuses to yield herself as an aid to the expression of his type and subconscious wish, but insists upon changes in him which enable her to express her own, he will gradually grow to dislike her. If she keeps it up, he will ultimately subconsciously hate her, though she be the mother of his children. The matter of biological types is too extensive to go into here and has been fully explained in our course, The Five Human Types. The present course deals with man's subconscious mind, but if you are interested to further understand human types and their effect upon our love life, see Types That Should and Should Not Marry Each Other, Lesson 6 of the above-mentioned course. Whenever an individual goes through life without marrying, it is not because he does not desire a mate, 
but because marriage with any of the people he has seen would, in his opinion, interfere with his supreme subconscious wish. Every unmated person desires a mate, but if he desires something else more, that is, if the desire for a mate is not his supremest desire, he will not marry until he finds someone who he is convinced will not interfere with his supreme subconscious wish. Many men and women mate with one who does not remind them of their subconscious love symbol, and they marry knowing this. Whenever this happens, it is because the finding of a mate who shall repeat this love symbol is not this person's supremest wish. He feels that the one he has chosen will aid in that supreme wish, whatever it may be, and strikes a compromise. Since that supreme wish is for something which to him is more desirable than the possession of an ideal mate, he sacrifices the lesser to the greater. You do the same thing in every decision of your life. This supreme subconscious wish in each of us is a primal, instinctive thing. It may be founded in high, recent, and civilized instincts, and often is, but much more often the deepest desire of the average organism is for the gratification of a primitive instinct, urge, or tendency. If this primitive thing is what he really wants more than anything else in the world, the law brings it to pass in his life. If it is too far removed for modern instincts, his family, his friends, and the world will call him a coward, a ne'er-do-well, a beast, or a criminal, depending upon the particular instinct which, out of the primitive group, is most overdeveloped in him. All the while, he will be wishing to live up to his higher instincts. He has many others of high order. One of these, and it exists in every human being, is the instinct of approbation. He wishes the approval of his fellows. He wishes to do and be and have the things that make them like, admire, respect, and follow him. But his supreme want must and will express itself. All its enemies must go by the board. He makes excuses. He equivocates. He apologizes. He tries to justify his failures to the world, whose opinion he so much values. Most of all, he suffers, but he feels that he suffers less than he would were he to give up his supremest want, so he pays the price. <laughs>